Hello and welcome to Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. Bye, writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Brent. I'm LP. And I'm Will. And joining us again, once again, is Piper J. Drake. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming again. Hello. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> we love having you here. Um, and this week, this time, we're going to talk about choices in writing. Will you explain what that means to us? Okay, so choices, there's so many choices in writing and the author career, right? Uh, But specifically, what I was hoping we all could talk about when it came to choices in writing is reader expectations versus teaching your readers in your writing, because that's kind of an author choice as to whether you're going to do that, Mm. right? Um, For example, a lot of times we find ourselves... Um, and we had talked about this in previous episodes where we were talking about a choice of our voice, the story we want to tell, our art versus the mainstream appeal of what people are more familiar with and might want more, right? So, for example, oftentimes Asian diaspora, when we write stories that are inspired by Asian themes or world building culture or mythology, a lot of my books right now, you'll notice, are um, inspired by Thai mythology. Uh, you may get some feedback from the readers, depending on how you wrote the story, um, that they're just not familiar with things. And did we take the time to explain this thing they're not familiar with? You might mention a type of food. And if you don't go into the experience and work into the story, what that food tastes like People are caught by surprise because they don't know what that food is, and it takes them out of that story. Uh, Other things could be uh, relationships between family members that kind of, you know, in the back and forth of dialogue and commentary, as an author, you may be telling the story in a way that it's kind of like an if you know, you know kind of situation, like Asian aunties, tiger moms. They all have a different kind of context. But... A reader who might not be familiar with those terms or familiar with those family dynamics or like, wait, why didn't anybody explain this to me? And so the reader expectation is something where are you making a choice to write a story that a reader is expecting and they're more familiar with? Or are you making a choice to write your story and you're going to take the time or something in between. All right. So I have a question then when it comes to food, because I know you've taught classes about like food and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do when you're describing something to say, like, maybe it's like, let's just use like white middle America who maybe just eats casseroles and <laughs> they haven't had anything else besides like <laughs> any type of. Asian cuisine, any type of like um, South American cuisine, how can we describe something? Like, do we have to go into their level to describe it? Or are we describing it as far as like texture and smell? Like, how can that come across? So it's not taking away from like that person's culture who's writing it. Like, not everything tastes like chicken. I think that's again about choices. The author choices. What are we making the choice to do? And also, where are we in the story? And how will this contribute to moving our story forward, right? Like, because we don't want to slow down our pacing or make our writing too heavy with detail where it isn't going to help the story. But we want to have enough detail that it's immersive for our readers. Uh, So uh, one of the classes that I do teach is food and characterization. And when that's the case, sometimes... If I want to choose um, a sharing between characters, I may have a character who's not familiar with a food uh, experiencing a food that's shared by another character. And it's a building of their relationship together as friends or trust, or it's an exploration. And so if it's in the POV of the character who's not familiar with the food, they'll taste it and you know, it'll come across in, in the the taste, the texture, the mouthfeel, the scent, the aroma, like what kind of feelings those come in. Or I may have a food that someone else is experiencing or walking into, and maybe they're not familiar with it, but they remember things that it reminds them of. Like there are a lot of things, for example, my first time going to Jamaica, I was not familiar with the food in any way, shape or form or the flavors 
But I was super excited because there was this fun dish that they were trying, which was a mixture of shaved coconut and sweet corn kernels and a little bit of sugar tossed together. And I tasted it. I was like, oh my gosh, this so reminds me of a treat that my mom used to make from Thailand, which was also shaved like baby coconut, which is a little different, slightly different texture, but the flavors were there. And they also use sweet corn kernels as a part of dessert and the natural sweetness of corn. Whereas in America, particularly depending on what regions of the United States you might be from, corn isn't as sweet. And so it boggles people's minds to use corn kernels in a dessert. Whereas another time I was with friends in Japan for the first time and there was soft serve ice cream in a parfait layered with sweet corn kernels. And I'm not talking about creamed corn or um, canned corn that might have sugar introduced into it. It was like literally corn cut off the cob. So those are different similarities that you can bring in where people who are experiencing the food are experiencing similarities to what they're used to, but also having an adventure in new things. Or it could tell you about a character if they're like, you know what, this brings back bad memories. For example, Piper Mommy doesn't eat chocolate, particularly chocolate bars, because several times, a couple of her younger siblings when she was in Thailand pranked her and did the old chocolate bar laxative situation to her. And so she will never eat chocolate now. Oh. Right. So even though people talk about how amazing and wonderful and glorious chocolate is, Piper Mommy does not eat bars of chocolate. In fact, she just generally doesn't pick chocolate desserts at all. And that's a choice, right? Whereas some people will be like, everybody loves chocolate. So you can have characters learning about each other. You can talk about a character and have it bring back memories. And also you can have them share back and forth culture. You know, I've written in books where my character like hesitantly has, you know, some surprise people come to the house or to her home. And they're like, hey, we wanted to check in on you and see how you're doing. She's like, I was just about to eat lunch. Would you like to share with me? I didn't really have time to prepare. So this is just a whole bunch of the dishes that my community brought and I reheated. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, can you explain to us what these are? And she has this hesitation where she remembers back in the school days, because this has happened to a lot of people who might be diaspora, is that when they brought their school lunch or when friends came to their house, the the kids their their playmates their kid the kids from the neighborhood were like that looks weird that smells weird that tastes weird and now as an adult she's making the choice to to offer to share because she's not in a position where she can ex- you know suggest that they all go out to eat right so she's sharing what she has here they caught her by surprise so she didn't have a chance to make something that would be more f- familiar to them and they're open mindedly just asking like hey what are these things and she's like hey this is pretty much a card fest this isn't how you would normally share it in a in a meal like that was planned but this is this this is this this is this right like um and and that scene of the friend sharing and her kind of resolving that tension inside her of sharing her food or being hesitant to bring her food from her culture out is isn't it was something that drove the story forward so i made the choice to explain it and go into what the flavors and tastes were and have the characters react to what was familiar to it with to them and what wasn't. Some of them said, hey, this is kind of a little bit past my comfort zone. Others were like, wow, I'm really here for it. I love this, you know, and, and others were like, you know what? I like this better than this. So it wasn't everybody loves this food. It was different people had different responses and how they could express it without being rude, right? And that's the way I chose to do it. But there are a lot of other ways that you can make a choice. You know, some authors make the choice of not taking the time to stop and explain all the tiny little details of exactly how this food or this moment or this family dynamic is put together. And if you know, you know. And if you don't, hopefully you're the kind of reader who can figure it out along the way based on reading the room figuratively rather than having it spelled out for you. And that's a choice. And there will be some readers who bounce off of that and feel left out or feel on the outside. And you have to realize that as an author, you have to make those choices because you can't make everybody happy. So it's what's right for your story, what's right for you and your voice, while also still getting across and expressing what you're hoping to express or hoping to share with your audience. And 
it's never going to hit everybody well. It's yeah. just going to hit some people awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, LP? Yeah, um, I've actually spoken about this a little. It's just, I don't know. I get, uh, I just remember being in high school and like reading books that had, you know, I'm from the inner city of Chicago, like my sophomore year, you know, a 12 year old boy got beaten almost to death by like a senior and two alumni of the school. Right. So when we would go back to read these books that had nothing to do with my life, I would just sit there glazy eyed and thought that I didn't like reading. Right. Mm-hmm. But there was all this like context in it that was like either thought to be universal or there was a, a, a footnote that explained what the fuck was being said, <laughs> like that gave the context, which uh, is great because like good readers should have the context, but it, it throws me because the idea is that like for these things that are considered literature or important, you know, the context is either given or we should already understand it. If I was at a better school, you know, we'd have been doing, you know, literary comprehension earlier. It was like, okay, so what, what do you draw from this instead? And what, what, what bothers me is that like, I find more often than not mainstream audiences have to be spoon fed and they're so quick to, to drop a narrative. If there's something that's unfamiliar to them or that's like, that's going to force them to work. And like, if I quit every time a piece of literature forced me to work, I wouldn't have made it through school. And so, and this is, I recognize my hill that I'm going to die on most likely by myself or the other six people who buy my books. But, (laughs) uh, but like it it, it frustrates me because like, I recognize this is what we're talking about, but I also get angry because I'm just like, I don't want you to explain you know, tie dishes to me because I have Google and like, if I can get from context clues that it's a food and I know Piper. (laughs) So I'm like, (laughs) I know these pictures are going to be on fire and they might be on her website or her Instagram. So we're going to check those out anyway, regardless. It was like, you know, I don't want you to slow down the narrative to explain a thing to me that I can pick up the context clues because I know that like, if I'm not reading something, if I'm reading something that's not for my culture, then like, I'm going to have to do some legwork. I, I I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, when do we have to stop spoon feeding people who have never needed to invest in literature in the same way? Whew, that was a long oh, way to get there. That's a heavy question. <laughs> See, and I think the thing that's really hard about it is that as we go through and we continue to tell our stories through the course of our author career, right? Like my author career um, if we count it from the time I was first published, we're in 10 years and going, right? Um, multiple series into my author career. And I don't mean that to brag. I mean that each step of the way, every book of every book there, I, I made choices. And I might have given you a different answer with every single book. But when it comes to when, you know, we hope that people's world will broaden enough that we don't have to go into detail Um, every step of the way, but also our world is continually expanding. So I, I hesitate, but I think it's very possible that there will always be a time when you're making the choice to tell the story you want to tell. You're going to go into the detail that you decide is right for your book. You're going to move the narrative and choose the pacing that you decide is right for your book. And readers are going to come to that and they're going to pick it up. And if they're in the mindset to read it, they're going to explore. If they're in the mindset where they don't want to do heavy lifting, they're going to pick up a book that doesn't make them do heavy lifting. And that's okay. It's the same thing as walking to um, a spread of food and making your food choices based on, hey, I want something light today. Or, hey, I really want something heavy and complex today. And I'm going to get that triple decker burger that's like got peanut butter and 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 bacon jam in it right like and 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 it's and it's on a brioche bun and it's got fried onions on the top and it's even got like a fried deep fried chunk of cheese on top and that is some complex stuff that i'm gonna eat every bite of and i'm gonna dip it in another sauce on top of it (laughs) right and then another time that same person might be like you know i'd really like a goat cheese and beet salad you know like 
different readers are going to pick up your book at different times. I can't tell you how many times I have put a book down because I'm like, you know what? This is too heavy for me right now. And I can't do the heavy lifting to learn my, like to learn a new world. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to read a familiar read, or I'm going to read a light read or a bubbly read or a fluffy read, right? Like you go into AO3 archive of their own and fluff is like a major popular top 10 tag because so many people just wanted to read a little fluff. So I don't think we're ever going to hit a spot where we don't have to acknowledge that there are going to be readers who don't want to do the heavy lifting because it just could be a mindset. But at the same time, that's not a bad thing, I hope. But there are always going to be readers who are going to be lazy. And you know what? They're going to bounce off our books. They are. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Nick, you had something to say, and then we'll go to Brent after that. Yeah, I've got quite a bit. Um, so I, I find the question interesting that you proposed to start with, Will, uh, and also Piper's answer, because we are talking about food as a culture, right? Um, and things like that. And like doing the lifting to, you know, kind of express from that culture point of view and helping other people outside that culture understand. Um, my question, and it's kind of a group question because we have people that have been living on both sides of the coast. People who have lived in different parts of the world and things like that. Um, kind of out like... The, the biggest question for me that I want to ask is, should you even have to try to cater to those outside the culture when you're describing cultural foods? Because when I when I think of arsenic and adobo, I go into that knowing. Oh, I love that, that book, by the way. Yeah. Sorry. Right? <laughs> I'm like flailing. I, I'm like, <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorites, but I went into the book knowing that there was going to be, I believe, Filipino-American culture there, Right. It's Filipino, right? It depends. So, like, there's I a lot of people going who, into it. Um, anyway, keep going. There's there's some people yeah. who will call I, it so annoying. I the book, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. See, that's another thing. I don't, I don't, don't worry know. about it. Um, but I, I went into that book knowing I was going to be exposed to a different culture. So when you're writing from a, a place of culture. You shouldn't have to. I strongly believe you shouldn't have to. But if you decide you're in a sharing mood. Or if you decide that you want one character, that it's important for one character to teach the other or share with the other because it's reflective of the relationship between those characters, whether it's a friendship relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a rivalry or villain relationship, and that will aid to help illustrate the way that that relationship is developing, then that's when you put it in there, right? Because it's, it's, it's part of the story, either for character development, for relationship development, for moving the plot forward. Like, you know, when it comes to using food and you decide, and we keep talking about food, right. but this can actually apply to language when you're using language. I am very much, you know, Will and I both agree, like, italics can go out the window you don't use italics for language even if you're using romanized and it gets even harder when you're talking about language that doesn't use um the western alphabet and trying to spell that like my mom had it out with me piper mommy had it out with me about how to spell some of the thai words that are in my books because that's you know it's not the original thai alphabet and it's not standardized how you would write that out so that's always kind of an adventure. Um, but when we when we keep using food because food is the 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 best metaphor that we've got right now that we're kind of all able to kind of jive with, um, you know, it's really about the author making the choice about what they want to share that will move their story forward and build out their narrative. Right. And it's readers will react with the way it react. They react once the book is out there. Right. But like there are sometimes like, let's say murder. It could be really interesting to know that a particular food has an almond flavor taste. And oh, by the way, what's in it? What tastes like almonds? Hmm. Right. Or if someone, you know, so, so that could be pertinent where you have to mention why a food tastes this way. And why it was perfect to poison somebody and use that particular poison in this food because it would be undetectable. But I also want to like, for me, my perspective, right? Like 
my thoughts according to Nick, we're not doing it for the reader benefit to help the reader understand that particular culture aspect. We're doing it to drive story or character. Ideally, correct. If you can, you're not you're you're not pandering to the reader that wouldn't understand that. I would never recommend pandering right? to the reader personally. I would recommend, hey, if you okay. recognize that you can kill two birds with one stone, go for it. And that's a little well, different. You know, I, no, I, no, I, I love that. Thank you for answering my question. I also think sometimes, you know, when it comes to like cultural things, it could be something like um, um, Arsenic and Adoba, you know, that book. That's so amazing because we have Tita uh, Rosie's Chicken Adobo that's written in the book, you know, so mm-hmm. you can use food as um, – a way to, you know, be, give you little flavors of the story that's like extra world building. I guess, too, mm-hmm. an, another question is, this is like a good exercise in that if you're writing a secondary world, you know, um, of how we can use those um, like kind of like uh, relationship sharing and like the that verbiage to build a secondary world food palette. You know, that would be really interesting. So this is like really good for reality and then like secondary world building. Yeah, there are some books that are a little bit cringe where they decided to take an entire specific culture and use their food as alien. And I'm not so much about that because that's very othering and I I, I wouldn't want to use it in that way. But when you're researching for second world, how many second worlds do people just basically try to go with their understanding of medieval cuisine? Right. I mean, I bought the Game of Thrones approved cookbook because I was really interested in the recipes, um, both because they had um, they had dual recipes. They had a recipe. Uh, I didn't, yeah, there's the Dungeons and Dragons Heroes Feast too. There's also the Final (laughs) Fantasy. There's a bunch of different cookbooks from a bunch of different things. And I have a bunch of them. Um, The reason why I like the Game of Thrones one that I mentioned that is because Second World Fantasy, right? Like pretty much. And um, what was kind of cool was they had the historically researched medieval recipe and then they had a modernized version of the recipe in the cookbook, which I thought was really cool. Um, I love that kind of thing. But you know, when you're using uh, second world fantasy and you're trying to think about the regions or the cultures that are in the second world that you're creating, um, Jacqueline Carey's Kushiel's Dart, I think, was one of the ones that was fairly well done because the culture as a whole felt um, very complete from the fashion to the beliefs and the social structure and the economics and the food was a part of it. You know, they, they enjoy food in Jacqueline and Jacqueline Carey's Cushiel start. They do. And it's different from region to region to region. And I think that that's a really fun thing and, and an aspect to the world building that made it richer. Right. Whereas there are other places, other books where they've used, you know, I don't want to call anything out. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to call out the stuff, um, but like they used an Asian culture's food and made it seem like, oh, this is alien. Mm. And they exoticized it. And that's where I'd be like, oh, you know, that's not really what I'm going for here. That's not really what I would look for in a second world fantasy inspiration. So author choices again, though. (laughs) So then um, when it came to your book that's coming out, Wings Once Cursed and Bound, what are some like when you were going through it for the editing phase, what were some things that you were thinking about, about like choices of explaining or not going in detail? Like how was that process when you were starting to go through the um, editing phase? So one of my favorite things to do when you're starting to build a found family right? And found families are another thing that I really like in my series um, is I like for them to share a meal together because of that relationship building. Uh, The way I grew up, Thai culture, food is a love language, right? Food is such a thread through everything we do in culture. And there are so many things. So Piper mommy taught me this phrase and I'm going to, I'm going to have the intonation wrong because my intonation is pretty bad. So for native Thai speakers, I apologize. My accent's terrible. Um, but there's a term 
Bak Kang. And that's a person with a mouth who won't say what they need mean to say. Basically. <laughs> Bak Kang. It's just a frozen mouth. And so instead of saying instead of saying what they can't say, they just put food in front of you. And like there are characters who do that, right? Like they can't say what they want to say, so they just put your favorite food in front of you, or they walk up and they hand you food because they're caring for you. And there's instances of that in my writing. And so when it comes to Wings One's Currents Demand, there is a moment where she comes down and she learns about people as they sit down to a meal. And the meal isn't isn't I this is the first time that I put together a meal that wasn't um a single person putting together an orchestrated meal from a single culture. Instead, um, I had chosen a character, Azamoa, and he's he's a muse. He's a huge black man, kind of like very, very lightly tiny inspired by the fact that I'd watched too many Great British Bake Offs and Selassie is an amazing, amazing, beautiful person. And anyway, um, so there's a whole bunch of dishes from a bunch of different regions that people wouldn't normally put in the same uh, menu that are what Azamoa serves for lunch. And rather than talking about the way that the menu is cohesively put together or where those dishes came from, my characters talk about things that they like that are favorites, right? So one of my characters, um, two of my characters had known each other in childhood and then had been, had lost each other for years and years and years and years. And now they're back and they're kind of like, I don't know you. Do I know you? Did I ever know you? And a thing that she remembers is that he really likes scallops and there are scallops in one of the dishes. And so she just kind of puts one or two extra on his plate because there weren't any left in the curry um, when he came in late to be able to dish himself up food. And he just looks at her and goes, you you have an amazing memory, right? Like, so there's that interaction where they remember things about each other and there's a fondness. There's other things where Azumo is trying to get to know her and watch her reactions as she's introduced to food by somebody that she doesn't know or food that she's never had before. And there's a moment where she's like, I love curries from different places, um, particularly Thai curries. And, and I like Indian curries, which are different. But is this kind of a Caribbean curry, which is completely different? And he's like, yes, good guess. You know, and, and you know, so they talk about that. And um, so they have conversation and get to know each other around the food and what they express that they like or what favorite things that they have are. And also just the moment where she asks them, hey, are you going to sit down with me to eat? And there's a hesitation because they weren't planning to. And then they all sit down to eat, you know, and then they start talking and then she feels like comfortable enough to start asking questions about them and their organization because of the sharing that going back and forth. So it's kind of an icebreaker. Like everybody hates the awkward icebreaker stage of people getting to know each other. Yeah. So that's how I used food in Wings Once Cursed and Bound. What's interesting is the second book, which I had just turned in, food comes into play in a little bit of a different way because my heroine there, her father was a chef, but he was a chef of, um, had a tendency to fusion cook. And so, you know, she thinks about like the different things that she would put together for our practical city life. And it's a fusion of different kinds of foods from different cultures that are just flavors that she likes that go together well, but also happen to have certain aspects of Chinese medicine considerations involved. Um, and she's also a person who pays attention to herbs and their properties and stuff like that. So it's kind of a little bit of herbal witchiness that comes into the food and how you can heal with cooking without any magic involved or you could have a whisper of intent in there and a little bit of magic. I love that. Um, so since we're talking about like choices in writing and one of the things, you know, you've mentioned about, you know, not just trying to get people like to like, you know, get used to like a non-Western structure in the story, but also like going from, your fantasy base or your romance base going into fantasy and vice versa. So were there some choices that you consciously made to kind of balance out the two and bring them both in at the same time? I did. I made some choices there that were narrative. Uh, not so much about the food 
this was much more about, mm, you know, the story itself has a central romantic relationship. That's for my romance readers. There are recognizable romance story beats in it. And there's a couple of different ways that you can approach a romance arc, right? Like there's multiple different kinds of takes on the romance arc and, and, you know, there's Romancing the Beat by Gwen Hayes, which I really recommend if you're trying to get into that. Uh, there are also various other blogs and articles out there about other authors and how they approach their story beats in romances. And I I um, suggest that you, you, you search for those. Uh, but for my romance readers, the central relationship arc is a romance arc with the beats. And um, from the fantasy perspective... I decided in my characterization, and this isn't something that I have tried before in previous books, but in my characterization, each of my main characters has a theme to them, which is something you would encounter more in fantasy than you might in romance. Because romance is about two characters, how they meet and how their relationship is going to work out, right? So their character development takes a different, um, takes a different progression. Whereas uh, for fantasy, oftentimes you have archetypes and those archetypes may have a theme about them. So when you're reading about Pirapan, you might find that truth is thematic for her. What she feels is her truth, what others have told her should be truths about her, what others have told her should be truths about society. The just general truth of, oh, supernatural things don't exist as a truth. Is that really a truth? Right? And and so when you read through the book, you realize that Pirapan's theme is around truth, whereas uh, Bennett's theme is much more mm. around whether or not it's even worth developing personal connections with mortals anymore no. and making the decision as to whether or not it is. And I know we'll cover this when we actually like sit down and talk exclusively about the book, but I think from reading it, that's what I think fantasy uh, readers are really going to love about this book of how multi-layered that is, right? As Because uh, I felt like you world-builded really well with each of those individual character arcs, and then there's that romance arc in it. Like The book itself is very multi-layered, and I think that just adds to the expansiveness that you feel with this book you know and i think thank you this is again why i keep saying like i know i said it on our last episodes but to me this book just like i feel like you like really like are bringing us a whole new level that maybe we haven't seen before you know in your writing and like your world building because i really feel like it was like you just i just love this book like i think you just did a really excellent job with how you're layering and how you're using techniques in a way that I don't think we actually have seen that from you before. Thank you. It did stretch me in a whole lot of ways. And I think one of the other things that I did that's interesting with this book and was a risk, right? Is that some people might identify this as urban fantasy because it starts in Seattle, downtown Seattle over by the Paramount theater, right? And it just goes right down Pike place and down to the pier 66, and so it's a very recognizable urban setting. But there are other times when I really lean so hard into moments of fantasy and magic that the setting around you just kind of disappears to the periphery. And what you're surrounded by instead is a magical moment. And so from that perspective, that feeling is very high fantasy. How magic works and how magic's magic surrounds the characters in that moment and what they're aware of and what they're doing. That's, and it wouldn't matter where they were in this world or in a different world in a couple of, in a, in a couple of moments there, there's, there's a moment in a cave where it's definitely not urban fantasy. And I made the choice for those fantasy elements to be very high fantasy elements. And so it does, make this book a risk because it feels like, Hey, this is urban fantasy, but it's not, but it's also not epic fantasy. It's there's, there's a whole lot about it that is like, Hey, I recognize this, but it's also got elements of that. 
You know, I really think it reminds me a lot of what Max Gladstone does in his books. You know, um, there's this balance. And I also, it, it also like similar, I would say to maybe Kevin Hearn, but still wildly different. You know what I mean? Like, I think people have been trained to think of urban fantasy from like the heavy hitters who kind of like pioneered it, like Laurel K. Hamilton. I was going to say, I know you're going to mention Laurel K. Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. Patty Briggs is in there for me, as yeah. well as Kate Daniel, or Ilona Andrews and her Kate Daniels, and their Kate Daniel series. But I think I think the difference is, is like, I'll use Laurel K. Hamilton. Laurel K. Hamilton's, yes, it's an urban fantasy, or sometimes it can be considered a paranormal romance. But really, those books are actually mysteries. Like, they're, the beats are actually really like mysteries of and then the the other plot that's layered into them you know i think maybe her mary gentry series is a little bit different um compared to anita blake like i think the mary gentry series do swing a little bit more fantasy ironically meredith gentry is part of a private investigator group exactly yeah no no i remember but i feel like we lose that a little bit as those series goes on so i definitely think well, those the pacing definitely changes because like it gets to a point where there is so much going on interacting between so many of the characters that literally only one day goes by exactly right? like, so the timeline in those books is completely and totally like compressed and stretched out and compressed but I think, you know, note Jim Butcher, all of those books are mysteries too. Yeah. Dresden's usually investigating mystery. Patty Briggs also usually investigating some kind of mysterious thing that happened and trying to get to the bottom of why and how and what. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the very first book of the Mercy Thompson series is is literally Mercy meeting somebody and him ending up dead on her doorstep and also kidnap somebody else kidnapped and her having to figure out who kidnapped all of them and why. Mystery. There's a lot of mystery involved in urban fantasy. And and I think that that's... And also we're seeing it in sci-fi, right? Like Aliette de Bedard's The Red Scholar's Wake, mystery. Oh, yes. Gail Carriker's The Fifth Gender, yeah. mystery. Station Eternity by Mer Lafferty. Uh, or also Mid- mystery. Solar Murders. Yeah, total mystery, which was... That was a really right? fun book to read. It was hilarious. The mystery element is is a really great way to have a thread through a plot. I mean, almost all of my romantic suspenses, the true hero series in particular had a mystery element to it. It was more suspense, right? Because you knew who the bad guy was by the mid range. And then they had to react to the bad guy um, or the bad organization or what have you. But um, mystery and suspense as kind of an elemental um insertion into other books of other genres is definitely there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and that's I, a choice. I, like how much do you give that versus the romantic thread versus it's, it's like weaving and what's the primary color Yeah, in the weave or texture. Go ahead, Marshall. No, I was just thinking, I mean, I obviously have a lot more books to read, but I was just wondering, cause at the top of the sh- episode, however, you were talking about, some of the choices authors have to make. So other, before we run out of time, I want to make sure there are other things you wanted to cover on that umbrella, as far as choices that we make where the re um, you know, teaching versus reader expectations. If there's anything we're forgetting, I, I, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because you were in the earlier on, you were talking about how readers are going to butt up against certain things. Right. And like, you're yeah. just not maybe in the mood for, to learn something and you, and you bounce off that and go to something lighter. Right. And there was a little thread in the, in our little side chat about light eating and, you know, eating light versus whatever. But what I found interesting is I do that with TV sometimes. Like I am just not in the mood to watch something heavy. I just, I yeah. have to, I'd rather watch something that's just not going to take a whole lot of, energy right or effort or whatever that might be in that moment you know what i mean so i just was wondering if there was something else um anything else we need to talk about along these lines i think it's really interesting i think all of us have a tendency to lean towards telling the story that we want to write and finding the audience or getting ourselves out there to the audience who has an appetite for what we write because i can't seem to get away from the food metaphors um (laughs) But there is an alternate strategy 
that I think it's fair to put out there, if it still gives the author joy, there's a really savvy technique to, and if you write fast, um, there is a savvy technique to finding out what the readers have an appetite for now and writing to reader expectation in order to establish yourself with that audience because they're the target audience or they're the target demographic and understanding reader expectation from that way, whether or not that is a, um, that that's a choice that you want to make as an author. You know, if you do that, you could end up establishing a very, very, very successful career very, very quickly. If you decide to write to reader expectation and find a way to marry that successfully with the stories that you want to write that give you joy. Um, and then also when it comes to teaching your readers, there are some people who are like, you know what? I want readers to experience my experience. And so you write something that's reflective of your experience and you put it out there and share it with the world. And that could be from any identity or any experience or background. And some readers are going to read it and feel like their lives have changed with this perspective. And that's going to be awesome. And there's going to be a lot of readers who are like, you know what? I didn't, I didn't find that engaging or I didn't find that relatable or I didn't find that to my taste. And, and that's okay too. There are stories out there that are like that, right? Like there are some people who are like, I want to teach you what it feels like to go through divorce. I want to teach you what it feels like to go through grief. And that story is about that journey through that experience. And so the author made the choice to teach readers and the readers who pick it up and read it, it may have changed their lives because of various reasons, either because they saw themselves in the book or because they had never experienced that before, but it gave them new perspective and an ability to maybe relate with other people in their world. Or they just wanted to learn and they just wanted to know how many people have been adding, thankfully, adding more and more diverse books to their TBR lists because they wanted to learn mm. when they pick up a book and they're like, Hey, I want to learn. Right. So in a way, authors who made the choice to teach your readers and therefore put a little more detail or put a little more insight or put a little more culture or experience or identity in there. Um, they may have made the choice to be a little more explicit about what they're spelling out as part of their narrative, because that's part of the big idea. It's part of the theme of their book. And they're not sacrificing or they're not pandering to anybody in order to do that. It doesn't feel like that for them because this is the experience that they were trying to share. Mm. Awesome. Nick? <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about choice and stuff like that. Uh, and I kind of want to like, we are talking about this from the author perspective. So I kind of want to ask Brent a little bit here too, someone who's been editing an LPSU as well, um, that I know you've edited on magazines, things like that. Um, author choice when you guys are faced with that and you're looking at that and you're seeing an author decision versus kind of what your feedback would be to them. Like how much do you weigh that into your decisions on, Hey, you need to change this, even though it's an author choice to better fit the story versus just letting something go because that's what the author wants. LP. I mean, I think a big part of that is, is reading a story and, and feeling like I'm connecting with the vision because if someone's doing something interesting with their culture or doing the the reliving mythology anthology, uh, you know, some of the 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 source material I just didn't know. So I had to to follow them along for the ride and trust that they knew the stories, the source material better than I did, and just focus on telling the story as a person who didn't know the source material. What is the story and how how can the story be greater from what I understand of it? Um, and I think that's kind of like just a part of meeting a story where it is rather than like having a conversation about what someone should do or shouldn't do. Like, how do we how do we how do we look at what you have here and make it the best version of itself rather than uh you know, you started uh, you started this story with with dialogue. No one likes that. Like, no, that's not uh, <laughs> break the rule. I'm fine with breaking the rule. I just want to make sure that like your story has the most impact that it's going to have, and that's how I approach it. 
Um, hmm. It's kind of complex. I guess it depends on what the intention of the work is going to be. Because if it is a, if the intent is to be a commercially viable project, then I have to look at that differently than something that like is intended to be more, I guess, of, um, a piece that speaks to a specific audience. So like, when we did the Breathe Fire anthology with Tor, that was a bunch of flash fiction that, you know, was speaking to the the moment of 2020 and, you know, all the um the anger that was in the uh, black community in, you know, in in the wake of, you know, um, George Floyd and, and everything that followed. So looking at that commercial viability wasn't the point it was getting that art out there to represent that you know that particular theme and speak to that particular moment so that's that looking at that and was very different than editing say um Malka's novella which you know the point of that was to be something that could be potentially commercially viable and and have additional books, which thankfully we got the sequel sold. So we'll see if we'll see if we get more sold. But so yeah, that's it's it's different. You have to have a different approach to it. You have to know intentionally what is a it's a tight one. You have to you still have to let the author be the author and you still have to let their voice be their voice. But you got you do have to you do have to consider um what what's gonna happen once the story's out of your hands and in the world. Like it's not because it, it stops being yours are the authors at that point so yeah it's a complex answer i guess but yeah it's just you just you got to consider the work there's no size fits all for that, basically yeah no i i, I asked this question because i had you do some critique of a short story and i made a choice in mine and you countered it with something else that better fit the story that's why i asked kind of like from your perspective because it's not something i caught the first three reads but you caught it in your first read, and I was like, "Okay, I need to ask this question." Okay, well, in that in that instance too, the reason I think I caught it was because you told me up front, "This is the place I want the story to sell. This is yeah, what you know that's true. I want to happen with it." And I knew that market, so as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Well, if you're trying to sell it to this market, you got to do this thing. All right, you should do this thing." Yeah. So, so you gave me enough information to work with. Okay. To, quickly make that i may not have made it without that information so i guess too like piper when you're when you're writing something that's from your culture is your editor also um ty or was she coming at from like is there a lot of handhelding if your editor is not coming from your culture i don't think i've ever worked with an editor who is um southeast asian Mm-hmm. Which was Thai specifically? Uh, Has that been hard? My current editor. I mean, there have been challenges. My current editor is very, very open-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I did appreciate is that um, she did ask uh, for an early reader uh, who was Southeast Asian to read the book as well before she got into it so that she could kind of keep those comments in mind as well as any editorial comments that she made. Um, and she focused on the narrative of the fantasy aspect and, and the fantasy element. She focused on the read from an overall story point, but she kind of let me know where uh, my choices of culture for each of my characters, because Thai isn't the only culture that's in there. Right. Um, or my choices for the mythological aspects of the supernatural beings might have um, sparked a question for her and made her stop and wonder. And she let me know when that reaction happened and then let me decide how I wanted to handle um, that reaction, which is very symptomatic. Like she's, she's approaching from, Hey, this is a symptom. This is, this is a thing that happened when I was reading. How do you want to handle it? I've got a couple of choices for you. Cause your mind, your mind may be tired or you may be too close to the story. Um, you could choose this thing. You could choose this thing or, or you could handle it a completely different way if you have your own way of doing it. Um, but here are the choices out there and I'm happy to get on a call with you and let's talk about it back and forth. Uh, so no, I've never worked with a Thai American editor and I think it would be very difficult because, you know, we talk about how important it is 
for diversity across all industries. Uh, when it comes to the um, the reading world, the the publishing world, it is a fact that editors, editorial staff, is it's very difficult to find diversity there as well, right? So the chance to work with a an Asian editor even is is something that I have yet to have. But I can tell you that the editors that I have worked with are usually ones where, yes, there have been challenges in the past. With my current editor, it was a pleasure to work on Wings Once Cursed and Bound with her and with the uh, early development reader who also is an editor freelance. Um, they brought really great comments to the story uh, and helped me with the development to tell a cohesive narrative, mm-hmm. right? Because it's hard to have that kind of level of, of elements going on and not have it be fragmented. And it's still a difficult balance. It's like some people may feel it wasn't romantic enough to be romance. Some people may feel it's not fantastical enough to be fantasy. And some people may just feel like it's the wrong ratio of peanut butter to chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. It just, or their peanut butter to jelly. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough blend to come to. Um, but yeah, my, my editor had to kind of write like what LP said, my editor kind of had to ride with me on the story and have faith that I knew the aspects from my culture that, that she might not be aware of. So I want to ask this, like, you know, um, you're writing from your culture, but have you ever gotten feedback like from people who are like from Thailand like not Thai American, like didn't grow up with any American culture. Have you ever gotten feedback where they're like, no, you're getting this wrong or you don't understand the culture. Have you experienced that at all? Piper mommy. Yeah. (laughs) Brings me to task on a regular basis. Uh, That's for sure. But, and Piper mommy is also my primary source for Thai mythology because I grew up listening to her. Tell me those stories orally. Like they were oral bedtime story tell- tales, or we would be walking through Thailand in Wat Prakout, which is a um, temple slash uh, ancient palace in the middle of Bangkok. And she'd be in front of the murals telling me the story as we're walking past the murals that depict those aspects of that epic story, right? Like Piper Mommy's an awesome storyteller. And she remembers mythology like nobody's business because she read it all when she was a kid and those books don't exist anymore. And they're definitely not translated into English. Um, so Piper Mommy has. And yes, Piper Mommy has definitely told me like, oh, hey, yeah, this is this is definitely a story for Thai diaspora. You're not writing from a Thai lens. But mm-hmm. then again, I didn't grow up Thai. And she's aware of that, right? Like I grew up Thai diaspora where I spent summers in Thailand, but I I'm not a Thai girl, right? Like I, even summers as a child, um, I was visibly taller, bigger than most of the adults carried more muscle mass. Uh, nicknames for me were like boar as in like the large pig that walks through the grass and it's ridiculously large and scary and hairy and, and tusks and everything. Like my nickname was boar. It wasn't piggy. Were their nicknames Roach? Because you'd stalk uh, them? <laughs> <laughs> no. Just gently pick them up and throw them in a pool. Um, there we go. <laughs> you know, like, there were things that I would do, especially, like, Beast was another one. Like, uh, well, who am I to say? Like, and, and, and that's a whole other different conversation about identity, right? Because... To this day, there are some people who had those nicknames and they meant it in a familiar, fond way, not realizing the damage it would do. And there are other people who said it and they were not so nice about it, right? But it is the diaspora experience or one of the diaspora experiences that might be familiar where physically you don't fit in because you just look different from having grown up differently, having different food available to you. Like, um. My Piper mommy's four foot 10 and I'm five foot four, right? Like that's more than six inches difference in height. And I'm broad across the shoulders. I've got curves, which doesn't seem normal at all for a Southeast Asian. I have double lids, which is very odd because both my brother and sister have monolids. And so literally people would walk up to my parents and ask why they allowed me plastic surgery when I was a teen. 
they asked if I was in idol training because that was a thing that like kids that grew up in Europe or in the Western world would come back to Thailand and become pop singers. And so they would go through a little bit of cosmetic surgery as well to, you know, fit the beauty standard. And I had these great eyes. I was an attractive kid. And they would ask, like, did you get her cosmetic surgery for her her breasts and for her eyelids? Because how else did she end up that way? And I'm like, no, sorry. I grew this way. There was there there might have been some milk and protein involved, and I eat a lot of eggs, but there was there was no cosmetic surgery at that time. Am I against cosmetic surgery? Absolutely not. I totally plan to look fresh and young for the rest of my living days. Okay. <laughs> but at that time. That was an interesting question that people had. And as I mentioned um, offline, my siblings and I um, have all different skin tones. And I'm the lightest of the three of us. Like, yeah, we do look like the toner ran out in reverse. Right? I'm very light. My brother's my brother, who's the youngest, is very, very dark skinned. Right. Very toasty, golden brown, dark skinned. And so people are like, how are you siblings? How are you siblings, right? So my Asian diaspora experience was that, like I would walk into stores in Thailand, they're like, no, you have to go over to Falang, you have to go over to the Westerners section of the clothing store. We don't have anything that fits you. Too tall, too curvy, too big, all of those things, too big, right? But you come here to the US and I had mentioned earlier in high school, you know, I was running around with the cadet junior RTC and I was tiny. Like some of these guys would pick me up, tuck them under my ar- their arm and like carry me like a football. I was small, but I was huge in Thailand. And I would come back from the summers in Thailand and be here in the US and I'd be small, like the shortest person there. And, and, you know, like my friends would pick me up, throw me over their shoulder. Like I was a duffel bag and run with me. So that juxtaposition gave me all sorts of confusion, really, really gave me a lot of confusion. And so, yeah, when it comes to writing, my, my Piper mommy has definitely, she's, she's very fluent in both Thai and English. She's also a very voracious reader who's read so many things, so many, so many stories. She's very avid in adult NYA. And she's let me know, like, my stories are Thai diaspora. They are not the Thai experience. Yeah. And that's okay, because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. Well, um, just to jump in here, um, we love having Piper on this show. Um, I just have to say that. And these episodes Uh-oh. have been amazing. Um, so to wrap up the conversation for tonight, since we do have to wrap up the episode, um, is there something, uh, I don't know the best way to say, to wrap these kind of things up, but I don't know, something that we can leave our listeners with to help them make these choices. Um, anything we haven't mentioned, anything like that that you can I think mean, of? Everyone will be full of opinions and advice as to how an author should write their stuff. And sometimes it'll be keeping in mind whether this is commercially viable and meeting reader expectations. Sometimes it'll be, hey, your readers aren't going to understand what you're saying here. Can we give this a little context and therefore teaching your readers? But ultimately, it is the author's choice. And you also don't necessarily have to be consistent about your choice making through the course of your career. Maybe in one book, be consistent Mm -hmm. about the choice you're making. But you get to make different choices every time you write a new book or a new story or take a new approach. Try a new thing. And maybe that those choices that you make all throughout your author career are going to be different. And sometimes they're going to be conflicting and changing, but that's who we are. So it's just your choice. I love it. Um, And we'll be having you back again, of course, to talk about your book (laughs) (laughs) and, and, you know, again and again, probably as well. Um, But thanks again for joining us, Piper. You're awesome. Um, we'll have all your usual links in the show notes so people can find you on the social medias and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, we'll have you back again for sure. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Piper. (laughs) Thank you. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes 
Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.